This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hey everyone, Chris here. Wanted to let you know that we now have an official Black Box Down shirt. It's super cool looking, so if you're a fan of the show and want to support us, please check it out because the money from merch sales goes directly to the production of Black Box Down and or the purchase of an airplane for Gus and me. So to check out our cool new shirt, go to store.roosterteeth.com or click the link in the episode notes. Thanks. September 29th, 2006. A brand new Embraer Legacy 600 business jet has just departed the factory in Brazil and is flying over the Amazon rainforest as it heads to its new home in New York State in the United States. On board are a captain, first officer, and five passengers. While cruising at 37,000 feet, the plane suddenly violently shakes and there is a loud bang. One of the passengers looks out the window and proclaims, we've been hit. The winglet on the left wing has been ripped off and jagged metal points up towards the sky. The crew begins emergency procedures and finds a military airbase in the jungle where they can land. Once on the ground, they learn the horrible news. They've collided with a Boeing passenger jet with 152 people on board and that jet is missing. How is it possible for two planes to collide? How often does something like this happen? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Box Down. You got Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're here with uh, another batch of episodes for everyone. Uh, before we get started, just want to remind everyone that they can follow us on social media on both Instagram and Twitter at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we post lots of supplemental information for these episodes, and uh, I like to think it's a it's a they're nice accounts to follow. I personally follow them. <laughs> <laughs> you also run them, but it's good to. Uh, Eat the food that you cook. Yes, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> and speaking of eating things that you don't actually eat, but actually consume on uh, using media, you should subscribe. <laughs> yes, you should subscribe to this podcast. Uh, tell a friend. Uh, give us good ratings, five stars. Give us a thumbs up. Whatever there is on the platform you're consuming this podcast on. This is like our third batch of episodes. We, we don't have seasons per se, but we consider like every 10 episodes to be like its own batch uh, of episodes. So since we're starting out a new batch of episodes here, I feel compelled to remind everyone, uh, neither Chris or I are pilots. Uh, we don't work in the aviation industry. Personally, I'm a, an enthusiast for aviation. And uh, Chris has agreed to listen to me rant over and over again <laughs> about this unusual uh, topic. So thank you, Chris, for listening to me as I talk about these things. I'm an enthusiast about you being an enthusiast. I like it. That's what we need more of in this world. That's, that's all <laughs> podcasting is, right? It's like enthusiasts, enthusiasts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this incident, uh, it covers an airliner, but it also covers a, a business jet. We're going to yeah. talk a little bit more into that. I wanted to kind of like give you a little misdirect there in the intro and make it seem oh, like it yeah. was just about this business jet, but really there's a there's a passenger jet. Well, I was like, who's shooting down plane like and over Brazil? And, and, and I was also, is like business jets, are those like for like just rich people? Right, like the, like a private jet. I'm sure you've seen them before, but yeah. you and I have never been in one. <laughs> That's sure. what I mean, for rich yeah. people. This is one of those jets. You know, it, it doesn't hold very many people. It's for, you know, just a small number of people. I think, uh, I'm going off the top of my head here. Like I said, there were five passengers on this business jet. I think two of them were uh, from the plane manufacturer. Two of them were from the company that was receiving the jet. And uh, one of the other passengers was actually a writer for the New York Times who was doing an article about private jet travel. What? Yeah, he just happened to be on this plane. He wrote a really interesting article about it. Yeah, that's kind of like weirdly convenient. Yeah, I don't have the name of the article here in front of me. I believe the article is entitled Defying Death at 37,000 Feet. Well, that's one of those things we'll be posting on social media. 
media. Yeah, if you check out our social media, we'll, we'll link to it. <laughs> but uh, I want to talk for a second about the other plane involved uh, okay. in this incident. It was uh, a Brazilian airliner. It was, uh, again, there's a lot of, I apologize, a lot of Portuguese words and Portuguese names in this episode. I'm going to do my best, but I know I'm going to get some of them wrong. So Gol Transportes Eros Flight 1907 was a domestic passenger flight, and it was flying from Manaus to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. This was a, a Boeing 737, and that crew consisted of Captain Decio Chavez, who was 44 years old and had 15,498 flight hours. And uh, he was actually a 737 flight instructor for uh, the airline. Uh, his first officer was Tiago Jordao Cruzo, who was 29 years old, who had 3,981 flight hours. And the aircraft was actually a brand new Boeing 737. They're both brand new. Yeah, I, th I think this plane was actually less than three weeks old. Uh, and there were 148 passengers on this flight, as well as four flight attendants. You know, it's it, one of the the kind of like colloquial reasons that people cite for why plane travel is so safe is it's not like you're going to like hit anyone or just, there's no fender benders. It's just wide open space. And plus, on top of that, there are systems designed specifically to prevent aircraft from getting too close to each other. There's safe boundaries that are supposed to be around aircraft. There's even onboard systems that we're going to detail a little bit that alert crew when there's another aircraft approaching them and getting too close. Mm. So you wonder, right, like, why does an incident like this happen? This is an interesting follow-up to our last episode, where the last episode, two planes collided, but it was on the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this one is like two planes collide, but it's in the air, which seems entirely improbable. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, you know, this shouldn't happen. There's lots of sky. There's lots of space. So, okay, I want to talk for a second about this business jet. The second aircraft uh, that was involved was an Embraer Legacy 600 business jet. Like I said, it was brand new. It was leaving the factory on its way up to the people that had purchased it. It was purchased by a company called Excel Air Service, and it was based in Ronconcoma, New York. Uh, and this was the delivery flight from the Embraer factory down in Brazil. The plane was crewed by Captain Joseph Lepore, who was 42 years old, who had 9,388 flight hours, and First Officer Jan Paul Palladino, who was 24 years old and had over 6,400 flight hours. Both pilots had years of experience flying commercially, and they were legally qualified to fly the Embraer Legacy. But, and here's the important part, Lepore had only five and a half hours, and Palladino what? only had three and a half hours in the Legacy 600. So they were qualified to fly this kind of plane. They've flown commercially. They've flown for thousands of hours. They just don't have a ton of experience with this specific model of plane. What is the total that they had between the two of them? Between the two of them? Uh, yeah. What is that? Nine hours? What is typical to be like to train in a plane before you're like, okay, you're good? Well, I mean, again, they're legally qualified for this plane. <laughs> they've flown other versions of this plane. Embraer doesn't only make business jets. Embraer also makes small regional jets. Uh, have we covered? I don't know if we've covered an incident with an Embraer uh, regional jet yet. They make regional jets as well. And I think both of these uh, pilots had flown the commercial versions of jets like this. So it's not like totally different. Okay. We talked all about the one that was based in New York. I think that was a regional. Yeah. The Colgan Air one. That was a, a Bombardier uh, regional jet. That one was actually a, a twin propeller plane. So it was a little different. It was also a regional airline, a regional plane, but that was a twin propeller, not a jet. Okay. I don't think we've covered any incidents with this kind of plane. But anyway, I'm getting off track. The point is, uh, there are regional jet versions of planes like this. This is just a small private jet. And like I mentioned earlier, there are five passengers on board. There are two employees from the airplane manufacturer and two executives from Excel Air and that columnist I mentioned from the New York Times. So the Embraer flight was the first plane that started its journey. At 2.51 p.m., they took off from San Jose dos Campos Regional Airport and they began their flight towards Eduardo Gomez International in Manaus. 
They were instructed to fly at flight level 370, which is 37,000 feet, and flew towards the Brasilia VOR. While the Embraer was making its way to the Brasilia VOR, flight 1907, which is the 737, was preparing for their flight. While flight 1907 was still on the ground in Manaus, they contacted clearance delivery to go over the intended flight path. The initially chosen cruise level uh, for the crew was flight level 410, which is 41,000 feet. But when they were talking to clearance delivery, the crew asked if they could instead cruise at flight level 370, but said 410 was fine if not. Uh, the controller said he would see if they could get coordinated, and a couple minutes later, they said it was fine. They could cruise at flight level 370. I don't know why the crew chose this new altitude. It could be a number of things, like the aircraft's weight, you know, meteorological conditions on the route, wind, clouds. Who knows? Okay, yeah. I was going to ask, like, why does it matter at that point when you're that high up? But Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they had a reason they wanted this yeah. new flight level. I can't tell you what it was. So, flight 1907 took off from Eduardo Gomez International at 3.35 p.m., and flew along the UZ-6 airway southeast bound, uh, and everything was operating normally for them. We say airway. Is that just like a, hey, this direction from here to here, roughly, like a road? It's actually, I wouldn't say roughly. It's fairly precise. It's like a connecting line between nav points. You've heard us talk about like the nav points before Uh and, you know, VORs and things like that. So it's pretty precise. It's like a line from here to there. Like that's where they were flying along. Huh. I never thought about like planes having... I mean, you've talked about nav points, and that makes sense, like, oh, different points mm-hmm. of reference. But I never thought about, like, oh, yeah, people just drive on roads in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like we talked about, I believe it was in the Korean Airlines flight where they had their autopilot set in the mode where it would just fly directly to a nav point, you know, yeah. instead of following uh, an input flight path. So, I mean, it's, yeah, there are routes that planes will take. Uh, okay, so again, we're going back to that Embraer flight. Uh, air traffic control had normal two-way communications with this flight up until about 3.51 p.m. The last successful radio exchange was made between the Embraer and Brasilia Control Center as the Embraer was approaching the Brasilia VOR. At 2.55, the Embraer overflew the VOR and turned in a northwest direction, flying along that same UZ-6 airway towards Eduardo Gomez International. Seven minutes later, secondary radar contact with the Embraer was lost, and the Embraer's Mode C information stopped displaying on the controller's radar screen. And we've talked about both of these things, you know, in the past, about radar and Mode C, Mm -hmm. but... A secondary radar system is a civilian radar system that relies on a piece of equipment on the aircraft known as a transponder. The transponder is a radio receiver and a transmitter that gives ATC information on where the aircraft is located. If you remember in our first episode in the Gimli Glider, we talk about the transponder and how that piece of equipment tells air traffic control what the precise altitude for a plane is. It's just relaying information constantly? Yeah, it's receiving and transmitting this information. That way, uh, air traffic control knows what's going on. Mode C is a code in the transponder that gives air traffic control that aircraft's altitude information. So at this point, the air traffic control cannot tell what altitude the Embraer is at by looking at the radar since their transponder isn't on for some reason. Mm. So for the next 24 minutes, there was no attempt made by either the Embraer or air traffic control to contact each other. Then at 4.26 p.m., Brasilia Center called the Embraer but received no reply. Brasilia Center then tried six more times to contact the Embraer, but they were unsuccessful. So they're just trying to be like, hey, why, pick up the phone. Pick up, why aren't you answering? Like, we know you're flying, but where are you? Right. Well, they're just like trying to contact them uh, in the blind. They're just broadcasting, hoping that they hear, and they're, but they're not getting any response. So are they broadcasting over the system that they stopped receiving information from? Well, they're broadcasting on like a radio frequency. This isn't via the transponder. This is like air traffic control just trying to reach out okay. to them. They have, they have set frequencies they're supposed to contact each other on. So they're they're trying to contact them on the frequency that they agreed to be talking on, but they're not getting a reply. Gotcha. At 4.30 p.m., the Embraer started to intermittently disappear from radar screens altogether, and then they disappeared completely at 4.38 p.m. 
The Brasilia Center then attempted to hand off the Embraer to the Amazonic Center at 4.53 p.m. by broadcasting the information, just kind of hoping the Embraer would hear it. And at the same time this is happening, the Embraer is trying to contact Brasilia several times, but they're unsuccessful. Hmm. So they just like are losing communication with each other. Uh, suddenly, just a couple minutes later, at 4.56 p.m., the Embraer and Flight 1907 collided almost directly head-on into each other oh. at 37,000 feet in the air uh, near the town of Matupa, which is 400 nautical miles southeast of Manaus. Right above a town? I don't know if it was immediately right above it, but it was pretty close to that town. The left winglet of the Embraer sliced through the left wing of Flight 1907, shearing half of it off. Do you know what the winglet is? The winglet, like, if, have you ever looked out the window of a plane and you see, like, at the end of the wing, those little, like, parts that stick straight up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not all planes have them, but some planes do. And there's different terms for them. Some companies call them sharklets. Some call them winglets. Uh, they're basically just there to reduce drag. They help efficiency. Okay. I like sharklets, personally. <laughs> I don't, like, I think only Airbuses call them sharklets, so I don't know if this, you can call this a sharklet, but... Whatever. I'm just trying to give a little bit of background on what this is. So that portion that sticks straight up at the end of the, the Embraer's wing uh-huh. sliced through the wing of the 737. So the little plane only lost its little tip. Yes. Most of the winglet got removed and also part of their horizontal stabilizer was also um, removed uh, as a part of this. However, the 737 lost half of its left wing. Uh, and this caused the 737 to begin a nosedive, and it entered an uncontrollable spin, and it quickly broke apart as it descended. Oh, it just fell apart in the air? Right. I mean, they lost half their wing. There's no way they can keep flying. Yeah, and so they couldn't fly, and then, yeah, just the momentum of it falling just, like, mm-hmm. broke the plane. Right. It starts spinning, and uh, the forces on it are not forces the plane is designed to take, and it just falls into pieces before it hits the oh ground. Oh, God. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like you think about, like, oh, something happened to the plane, and they would all die on impact. Or like it would smash on impact. You don't think about it like falling apart beforehand. Right. Yeah. It's uh, and then falling, you know, for 37,000 feet. It's uh, it's pretty terrible. So flight 1907 crashed into a dense area of the rainforest below and all 154 people on board were killed. And the aircraft, of course, was destroyed. The Embraer suffered serious damage to the left winglet and the left horizontal stabilizer, but it managed to stay flying. Uh, Its autopilot became disengaged and the crew had to apply a lot of pressure on the yoke to keep it level. Three minutes after the collision, Amazonic Control Center started to receive the Embraer on secondary radar and they attempted to contact the jet but were unsuccessful. The Embraer started making radio calls on the emergency frequency uh, 121.5 immediately, but the calls were not heard because it turns out that the emergency transceivers in this area were not operational at the time. So air traffic control couldn't oh. hear them on that frequency. So is that why they disappeared? Well, they were having trouble. They, like it was distance, right? The radio waves can only go so far. Okay. Uh, so they were kind of in a remote area. And then as far as the emergency frequency, uh, the transceivers in the area were not operational. So that's why no one, the air traffic control cannot hear them. Shortly later at 5.01, the Embraer was able to establish contact with the Boeing 747 cargo flight, who was also on that frequency. And the 747 was able to relay information between the Embraer and air traffic control. And at 5.18, the Embraer contacted Kachimbo Airport and landed safely five minutes later. Did they know what had happened at this point? No, they're not sure. Uh, I think that uh, yeah, they could see that the winglet was destroyed. You know, the passengers mm-hmm. could look out the window and see that the winglet was messed up. And I think, you know, like I mentioned, one of the passengers said we've been hit, but they had no idea what had happened. If you think about it, if each plane is flying at each other in opposite directions and they're both going 500 miles an hour, let's say, I don't know exactly what yeah. speed they were going, but let's say they were both going 500 miles an hour. The relative speed then is 1,000 miles an hour of difference. So, you know, they would only see each other as a speck in the distance 
And then that oh. was it. You know, there's no way they had any time to react. Yeah, it would have been super fast. And, and that's assuming even they were like 100% head on. Right. And they were pretty close to being head on. That's why, you know, the wings hit each other. But the amount of time that they would have to react is so minuscule that realistically, they probably would never have seen the other plane. Hmm. And uh, that's why, yeah, I think at this point, the crew isn't sure what they hit. They're not sure what happened. All they know is that their winglets messed up and they're having trouble controlling the plane. Uh, but, you know, one of the passengers immediately speculates that they've been hit, but they don't know by what. This is going to be a dumb question, but it's not like there was like a bird or like a someone like a, a, a big drone or something. Well, I guess it was 2006. So right. something like that. I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I believe that initially they speculated that it might have been a weather balloon mm, yeah. or something else up there because it's pretty high. It's 37,000. Yeah. Feet. But they're not sure what happened. They don't you know. They surely don't. Their first thought isn't that. We hit another plane, much less we hit a passenger plane. Yeah. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I, I read a lot of interviews, you know, obviously since this crew survived and there was a columnist on board, there's a lot written from their perspective. And I think that initially one of them speculates that maybe there was a military plane flying around uh, at that same altitude and maybe they hit a military plane. Oh, because sometimes I guess they're on, they have their own system and they don't communicate that necessarily. Right. So they don't know. All they know is that they probably hit something, but, you know, by the time they land, they don't know what's going on. We got kind of a different sponsor this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. Uh, and trust me, I know every day somebody tells you, you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod and say, sure, and you never listen to it. Who knows? Maybe someone told you the same thing about this podcast. Uh, but uh, please don't let that happen here. You got to listen to it. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different, fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I mean, I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which is very useful and sounds maybe a little disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. And here just the other day, there was an interview with Rene Disreta, who studies the role of curatorial algorithms and the role that they play in the proliferation of disinformation and conspiracy theories, uh, something I think that we've seen a lot of here lately. Uh, also an interview with David Scheimer, who uh, talks about covert electoral interference and uh, the history of it over the past hundred years. Uh, really important topics considering uh, the state of the world and what things that are going on today. Uh, Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, where you listen to podcasts, uh, where you listen to this right now, probably can get it there too. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by HelloFresh. You can get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Uh, HelloFresh offers convenient delivery right to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. Don't even have to go out. It gets delivered right to your front door or your side door, wherever you want, whatever door you want. HelloFresh offers so many delicious options every week to help you break out of your recipe rut, try new things. Uh, I know we all get in that rut where we're eating the same thing all the time. Why not try something a little different? Uh, plus, HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients so you're not overbuying, which is a burden on the planet and your wallet. So, Hell helps make it a little more sustainable. You're only getting what you need. Uh, plus, you can keep your fridge stocked by adding extra proteins or side like garlic bread to your weekly order. So, it's flexible uh, depending on what it is that you want. 
it's super convenient. I love getting a box of HelloFresh. Uh, it's it's actually something you can look forward to. You know, after a day of work, you're like, I'm just gonna sit down and I'm gonna make something. And you know, it's right in front of you. Super easy to follow instructions. And next thing you know, you're eating your delicious creation. So just go on over to hellofresh.com/blackboxdown80 and use code blackboxdown80 to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. Again, that's hellofresh.com slash blackboxdown80 using code blackboxdown80 to get a total of $80 off across five boxes. So it turns out that the airport they land at, that Kachimbo Airport, is actually an Air Force base. Uh, and immediately after they land, Brazilian Air Force officials and officials from the Brazilian National Civil Aviation Agency detain and interview the flight crew. Uh, both uh, flight recorders, the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder are removed from the jet and they're sent to Ottawa for analysis. In the initial uh, deposition, the Embraer flight crew testifies that they were cleared to flight level 370 by Brasilia ATC, and they were at that level when the collision occurred. They also said they had lost contact with air traffic control and that their anti-collision system did not alert them to anything. On October 2nd, the captain and the first officer of the Embraer were ordered by Mato Grosso Justice Tribunal to surrender their passports pending further investigation. Whoa. The request was made by the Peixoto de Azevedo prosecutor and was granted by Judge Tiago Sousa Noguera e Abreu, who said that the possibility of pilot error on the part of the Embraer crew could not be ruled out. And the Embraer crew were forced to remain in Brazil until December 5th when their passports were released. Where were they from? Uh, they were American. Okay. And so they're detaining them in case, what, they're going to get arrested possibly? Right. Because they don't, at this point during the investigation, they don't know if there's criminal negligence or if a crime was committed. Yeah. Uh, so they seize their passports so that they cannot leave the country pending this investigation. They're there for, you know, quite a while. Um, I mean, this incident happened on September 29th and it wasn't until December 5th uh, when their passports were released. Yeah, I mean, just from what we I've learned from this podcast, those those investigations can take a long time. <laughs> yeah, it can t it can take years. I mean, some of the stuff we've talked about, right? Yeah. So ultimately, what happens here is a federal judge rules that there's no grounds for restricting the, the freedom of motion of foreigners. Uh, however, before leaving the country, uh, the pilots had to sign a document promising to return to Brazil for trial or when required by the Brazilian authorities. So ultimately, the investigation is still ongoing. Like you said, these things don't wrap up quickly. Uh, yeah. But a federal judge tells them they can go back to the United States, but they have to come back for the trial or if they're summoned as part of this investigation. The Brazilian Air Force sent five fixed-wing aircraft and three helicopters to the region where Flight 1907 went down and performed an extensive search and rescue operation. 200 personnel were involved in the operation and the crash site was spotted by the Air Force on September 30th. The rescue crew had a difficult time reaching the crash site due to dense forest. Uh, the Brazilian Air Force rappelled down to the crash site where they confirmed there were no survivors. I think initially in this incident, there was some confusion and the media had initially speculated that maybe there were five survivors, uh, but it turns oh. out that, that was not true. You know, it's just, you know how it is. There's there's a lack of information in the early days and people are trying to figure out what's going on, but ultimately they, they realized no one survives this. Yeah, well, they thought the five survivors were probably from the other airline. I hadn't thought about that. That's uh that's a good point. They they may have been confused by that. I I, I had not made that connection. You brought it up. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> so the Brazilian president Luis Inácio Lula da Silva declared three days of national mourning. Uh, the flight data recorder and part of the cockpit voice recorder were found on October second, and nearly four weeks later, on October twenty fifth, the rest of the cockpit voice recorder was found uh, using two hundred Brazilian army troops equipped with metal detectors. The flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder were sent to the same labs in Ottawa, Canada, that the ones from the Embraer uh, were sent to. And October 4th, the recovery crews began moving bodies to a temporary base nearby where they were transported to Brasilia for identification. 
And after seven weeks of recovery in the dense rainforest, all the remains were removed. And by November 22nd, all the victims were identified. I kind of feel like if I was out in the rainforest and like, I would just, I wouldn't care if anyone got me, but that's just me. You mean like if you were involved in this incident? Yeah. Well, I think the families want closure, right? They want to know, yeah. you know, they want to have uh, a funeral or they want to pay, you know, respect to the remains of their loved ones. You know, it, it, I guess it's easy for us to think about, like, if that was us in our first person perspective, because we're, you know, we would be, yeah. we would have we would have passed <laughs> away. But, you know, there's there's still people alive who have to deal with the grief and all of that stuff. No, I, I get it. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult situation for sure. Uh, and it takes, you know, it's it's a lot of work. Like this takes a long time. What I say it was uh, seven weeks uh, to recover everything because they were in such a remote part of the rainforest. Yeah, and I guess there's always that hope that maybe they survive somehow, like you know, like a castaway or something. Right. You know. And I think you know we've talked about in some other incidents where people who are in an incident they think that they're going to crash or they think they might not make it. You know, they start scribbling notes to loved ones. And oh yeah. And you know they they, they want to make sure that if anything like that exists, that they go out and they recover it. Yeah. Okay. So so the investigation was carried out by the Brazilian Air Force's Aeronautical Accidents Investigation and Prevention Center, which is abbreviated CENIPA. So if you hear me say CENIPA, it's that group who are doing the investigation from Brazil. Uh, and the NTSB was also involved in this, uh, which is the American National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, it turns out that the crew for the Embraer jet were not very well prepared for this flight. Mm. For one of the pilots, this was his first time he would receive an aircraft directly from the manufacturing plant. And for the other, this would be his first flight in an executive aviation. Um, there is a flight support manager at Embraer, and this person helps advise pilots on flight plans. The pilots did not request a flight plan to be delivered to them on the day before the flight, and this is apparently unusual from what normally happens. The flight support manager went ahead and put together a flight plan for them uh, on their behalf. It's a little unclear exactly what happened in the report, but you know the flight support manager probably just did this for the sake of wanting to help the pilots. Maybe commercial ones, you don't request flight plans because they just give them to you? Is that how it works? Or Well, in in, a, in commercial aviation, the um, the crew does work on that. Uh, they do, you know, sit down. It's part of the pre-flight checklist is to review it and go over it. Like when I talked about the, the goal transportes flight involved in this incident, you know, they requested a different altitude. You know, they were reviewing okay. their flight plan yeah. and they said, hey, let's fly at 37,000 instead of 41,000. So in this instance for the Embraer, the flight support manager chose a route based on what would be best for the winds. Mm -hmm. uh, and the pilots declared that on the day before the flight, they were at Embraer most of the day planning for the flight. But according to Embraer delivery manager and the gate records of the manufacturing plant, they entered the facility at 12.34 p.m. and left at 2.24 p.m. So they're there less than two hours. Uh, they spent most of their day away from Embraer. What? How much prep goes into a trip? I guess typically for I guess if it's a new plane, you would want to spend more than two hours. <laughs> You're yeah. right. It's a, it's a new plane. You want to go over all this, especially like I said, it's the first time for one of them receiving a, a new plane from a factory, and the other yeah. one, you know, didn't have much experience in executive aviation. So that night, there was a special dinner that the two pilots attended, and then afterwards, they went out with the engineer that was assigned to support them with the aircraft flight operation. The engineers said they got dropped off at their hotel between midnight and 1 a.m. The pilots said they woke up at 8.30 a.m. and went back to Embraer, and the pilots arrived at Embraer at 10 a.m. and started making preparations. There was a special lunch that took place at noon, but the pilots said they would not go because they still had to make preparations for the flight that was supposed to leave at 2 p.m. Hmm. However, one of the Embraer employees said he saw one of the pilots at lunch while the other stayed behind at the aircraft. 
They returned from lunch around 1.15 p.m., and one of the pilots went into a room with the delivery manager to continue making preparations. And it seems they were delayed a bit because the plane actually took off a little bit before 3 p.m. So it sounds like they were they went out and were, like, having fun. Yeah, I mean, they had a special dinner. They were out late, had to wake up early. You know, and we've talked about some of these things in other incidents about how pilots need to be rested. And, you mm-hmm. know, you want to make sure that everyone's aware of what's going on and adequate preparations take place. So at this point, uh, the Sanipa report says it's becoming clear that the tasks that needed to be performed by the crew were not done in a systematic way. And we all know these procedures exist for a reason. These systems mm-hmm. exist for a reason. It's there for everyone's safety. Also, there was no standard operating procedure for this plane because it was brand new. The two pilots only had a few hours of time in this type of aircraft, but not in this brand new model. It's also noted the two pilots did not have time to become familiar with the plane's flight management system. And the Sanipa states that the crew was operationally unprepared to make this flight. So if they normally do commercial, who is the boss of private pilots? Like who's in charge? Like, is there a company that like license, like that hires them out? Or how, how does that work? Like who, who, who are they reporting to? Well, I mean, they're employees of the airline. I think, you know, in the cockpit, the captain's in charge. Uh, but you know, they're, they're airline employees. What you might be looking for is the FAA is who certifies pilots. Is that the answer you're looking for? It's, yeah, well, I guess it was like it's all the same systems that exist in the commercial portions of the industry. It's just for private. So it's not like there's a separate company that hires out the pilots or anything. Uh, yeah. In, in this case, the pilots, I believe they worked for that Excel Air company. Uh, company that I mentioned that was receiving the plane. In my head, I was like, are there like such, I mean, do people have like private pilots? Like, is it, you know? So you can kind of think about it like a charter bus, right? Like if you, Uh a group of people need to go somewhere, they charter a bus and the charter company takes care of the bus driver and the bus and all of that stuff. You just show up and get on it. Yeah. Okay. That's the kind of company Excel Air is, except instead of buses, it's planes. They have private jets and you just rent them. If you need to fly somewhere, you don't own a jet, you don't have a pilot, you contact Excel Air and they provide you the jet and the pilot. Okay. Like that time we went to Mexico for Brandon's wedding. We did not fly there. <laughs> we, we didn't have a private jet. I just want to clarify that. Oh, you're, yeah, talk, yeah. You're, you're talking about a charter bus. Were you on the bus? No, I I, I flew commercially. Okay. Yeah. Well, everyone else took the bus. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 flew on, I flew on an airline. I was actually in uh, San Francisco right before that wedding. So I had to go okay. from San Francisco down to Mexico for that wedding. Anyway, we're on a strange tangent about going to our friend's uh, wedding. So during the flight, there was a moment where the pilots were trying to figure out how their transponder worked. They were told to put in a new squawk code and press the ident button so that the controllers can easily see where they are on the radar. The cockpit voice recorder recorded one of them asking how to ident with this transponder, further proving they were unfamiliar with the systems of this aircraft. Mm -hmm. It was also found during the flight the transponder was set to standby mode. This is why the information about the plane on the radar screen disappeared. Because they didn't have it set up properly. Wait, they set it on standby? The transponder was in standby. At this point, it's unknown whether it was always on standby or if they put it in standby by accident. Oh. So the Sanipa's best theory on why the transponder was turned off is because it was accidentally set to standby while one of the pilots was trying to use the flight computer for another purpose. And because they didn't know how to use the equipment, it was set to standby on accident. Uh. And when the transponder shut off, the traffic collision avoidance system shuts off. So they weren't able to see that another plane was coming towards them. And the Boeing couldn't see that they were coming because their transponder wasn't transmitting the signal. Oh. So there's this system in planes uh, that's called TCAS. I believe it's the Traffic Alert and Collision Avoidance System is what it stands for. Uh Uh-huh. And TCAS is a system that should have prevented this here. So anytime, let's say you're flying a plane and another plane starts to get a little too close your TCAS will go off and alert you and let you know about it. What is a little too close in a plane when you're talking about a thousand miles? There's different thresholds for different sizes of planes. 
uh, off the top of my head, I want to say that TCAS will alert you between four and six miles of distance. It'll let you know that there's another plane out there. Okay. And the like that kind of alert, it'll just say like traffic, traffic. And you, you'll look and you'll see there'll be like a little indicator showing uh, where the plane is, what their altitude is, and whether they're descending or climbing. Okay. So it's pretty, I was gonna, that was my next question is like, how do you know which direction to turn? <laughs> you know, because that's the other half of it. So what I just described there is the traffic alert portion uh-huh. of it. It's also a collision avoidance system. So the other side of it is if the two planes are continuing on a route where they're going to intersect with each other, that's when the collision avoidance kicks in. And the TCAS will tell one plane, climb. And it'll tell the other plane, descend. Oh. And it coordinates between the two planes. That way they both move in a direction where they don't hit each other. Yeah, so that's like a, a really precise system where it's like it tells you where the planes are but also tells you which way to go that's right yeah. they're going to coordinate with each other and they're going to give clear instructions on how to avoid this collision imagine if cars could do that yeah it'd be pretty cool i mean this <laughs> is this is a great system this is this system is why you don't hear about planes colliding really anymore yeah that, that's why this is this is a bit of a frustrating incident because if the transponder and uh, tcas have been working on the or had been turned on in the embraer this would never have happened yeah there's also some more underlying issues that we're about to get to here. The crew also thought they would be clear to fly at flight level 370 for the entire route. And I'm talking about the Embraer here. Okay. However, their flight plan consisted of a descent to flight level 360 and then later an ascent to flight level 380. However, according to the flight plan, they were supposed to be at flight level 380 at this point of collision. So they were not at the correct altitude. They were supposed to be at 38,000 feet. When they thought they were cleared at 37,000 feet, so they were flying at 37,000 feet. They were in the wrong lane. They're in the wrong lane. While on the ground, the Embraer crew received an incomplete clearance from air traffic control, and this miscommunication led them to believe they would be at flight level 370 for the entire flight. Uh, There were also problems with air traffic control during the flight. While they were being handed off between controllers, the controller for Sector 5 did not inform the controller for Sector 7, nor the pilots of the upcoming flight level change on the flight plan. Wait, so there was a change on the flight plan? You can think of this as a handoff. The the Uh flight got handed off from one controller to another controller. And when the handoff occurred, the new controller did not alert everyone that, hey, there's you all are going to have to change altitude. There's an altitude change involved here. Okay. So when the controller for Sector 7 received the information that the plane was supposed to go to flight level 360, he did not inform the crew. And then seven minutes later is when the transponder stopped working. The controller for Sector 7 was relieved by another controller. And he told this new controller that the plane was at flight level 360, which is incorrect. Okay. So when you say it's the controllers, or I guess I'm thinking of in terms of like a flight plan is like an itinerary that gets printed out and says, all right, here's here's where you're going, here's these waypoints, and here's your altitude. But they don't have that? Or is it just live updating constantly? So when they're on the ground, before they even take mm-hmm. off, the pilots will talk to air traffic control and go over the flight plan. Okay. Air traffic control will tell them what the flight plan is, and the pilot's supposed to read it back. And then once they know they're on the same page, then it's like, okay, you can take off. And then okay. as they're flying, if there's any changes or updates, that's relayed between air traffic control and the pilots. And, you know, yeah, I'm sure you have we played. Well, I don't think we've ever played any cockpit voice recordings here, but whenever air traffic control gives information to a pilot, that pilot is supposed to read it back to air traffic control to make sure that it's understood and then it's acknowledged. Like, okay, you got it. Uh, I think we even talked about this briefly in the Tenerife incident when yeah. KLM was getting ready to take off and uh, air traffic control told them what they were going to do after takeoff. They were going to climb to a waypoint, turn, and 
things like that. Yeah, and they read it back, but it was in a weird way. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of systems in place to try to make sure that everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing. And honestly, the pilot's supposed to know their flight plan before they take off. Yeah. Uh, and plus, this is compounded because, you know, one air traffic controller was overseeing the flight and they got handed off to a different one, which is fine. That happens all the time. Uh-huh. And then the new flight controller got relieved by another flight controller. Maybe there was a shift change or a break or something. And the information wasn't being properly communicated between person to person from yeah. an air traffic control uh, perspective. So at this point where we are, like I said, the controller for Sector 7 was relieved by another controller and he told this new controller the plane was at flight level 360. We know that's not true. Uh, the next time air traffic control tried to contact the Embraer, they were unsuccessful. It turns out the crew were using a frequency that was in their chart, but that frequency was not available. Mm-hmm. The crew and air traffic controller were on two different frequencies, it seems. So when the controller then handed the plane off to the Amazonic Center, he did not inform them that they had no radar or radio contact with the plane. And he told them that the plane was at flight level 360. Did uh, the pilots on the plane know that their radar wasn't working because of the, the system being down? No, they didn't realize that uh, their transponder was set to standby. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I was also thinking, like, you said there were some towers that were, or some... Like... Oh, that, that was for the emergency frequency when they uh, oh, okay. tried to contact on 121.5. Okay. Does an autopilot automatically lower and raise altitudes? That's an excellent question. Yes, it should. In this instance, I don't know since some systems were not properly functioning. I don't know what would happen in that case. Again, not a pilot, so I can't answer that. But since their transponder and other systems were not properly functioning, I don't know what an autopilot would do in this case. Also, I don't know necessarily that they were even using autopilot at this point. Yeah. And I want to give one other note here. So we've talked about how this plane was not flying at a correct altitude. And there were all these chances for this to be caught and it wasn't caught. There's another general rule of thumb that was broken here that also led to this incident. Typically, any flight that's eastbound flies at an odd flight level. And any flight that's westbound flies at an even flight level. The Embraer was flying northwestbound and the 737 was flying southeastbound. So just using this rule of thumb, the Embraer should have known they should have been at an even flight level, not at 37,000. Okay, so they, yeah, that's just like, right, like you drive on the right side of the road in the U.S. Exactly. And yeah, so that's like basic. That's why even their flight plan consisted of them descending to 36,000 and they were supposed to later climb to 38,000. Okay. Even numbers. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes so much sense. Right. That's like, oh, the systems are down. Well, you're going this direction. Yeah. Yeah, fly at an, fly at an even altitude or fly at an odd altitude. It's just, if nothing else, you're supposed yeah. to follow that just to help avoid this. Every system could be out except for knowing your altitude and you could do that. Right. It's easy. You, you, you should just be able to know that off the top of your head. Okay, so on December 10th, 2008, uh, Sanipa issued their final report. They said that the air traffic controllers contributed to the accident by originally issuing an improper clearance to the Embraer and not catching or correcting the mistake during the handoff to Brasilia Center. And there were also errors in the way the controllers handled the loss of radar and radio contact. They also concluded that the Excel Air pilots contributed to the accident with their failure to recognize that the transponder was switched off, therefore disabling the collision avoidance system on both aircraft and the overall insufficient training and preparation. This is one of those incidents where the two investigations come to slightly different conclusions. Oh. So like I said, the NTSB was also investigating this incident. And the NTSB had similar conclusions, but they disagreed that the pilots of the Embraer were at fault and that both flight crews were acting properly, but were placed on a collision course by air traffic controllers. So the Brazilians blame air traffic control, but they also put some blame on the Embraer pilots. The NTSB says... The pilots weren't at fault. It was all air traffic controllers' fault. Well, it sounds 
like definitely the pilots were at fault some, but is it anything to do with the fact that NTSB is based in the U.S.? <laughs> right. I mean, that, if, if you listen to what I was saying earlier, this is the reason that the flight data recorders were sent to Canada. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the, they, they send the flight data recorders to an independent third-party country that can analyze them and give their uh -huh. findings to hopefully not. That's why they didn't look at them in Brazil, and that's why they didn't send them to the U.S. They try to find another country to look at them. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it, it, countries might be biased to say that their citizens weren't at fault. Who knows? Of course, you want to believe that the investigators try to be as objective and fair as possible, but you just never know. What do you think, Gus? Uh, I think that the pilots were at fault. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, based simply on what that last little bit of information I gave you, they should have been flying at an even altitude. Yeah. Would they not have questioned or right. like double checked? Like, hey, just want to confirm. That is such a basic bit of knowledge. And even if disregarding everything else, that alone should prove that there was they had some fault in this. But whatever. I'm not a pilot. I'm not an investigator. <laughs> so my opinion doesn't matter from what you're out here. Does to me, Gus. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. So I want to talk about the aftermath of all of this, but I need to give a little bit of background first. Brazil used to be ruled by its armed forces. Uh, but at this time when this happened in 2006, a civilian government had taken over. Uh, however, the airways were still controlled and operated by the Brazilian Air Force and was overseen by a civil defense minister. Okay. So all of this, all of their airspace is controlled by their air force. And in October of 2006, as details began to emerge, some attention and focus was put on air traffic control and their possible errors. This led to resentment by the controllers and exacerbated their already poor labor relations with their military superiors. Controllers complained about being overworked, underpaid, overstressed, and forced to work with outdated equipment. Uh, many of them also had poor English skills, and we've talked about how English is the language of aviation. Uh, so they had a hard time communicating with foreign pilots. Uh, controllers began staging walkouts and slowdowns and hunger strikes that led to chaos in Brazilian aviation industry. Whoa, a walkout? On the flight controllers? Right. Like, you need these guys. Yeah. Uh, on July 26, 2007, after another deadly accident, the president of Brazil fired his defense minister and replaced him with a new one who vowed to improve the air traffic control system in Brazil. So there's another accident that was possibly Brazil's fault? Yeah. Uh, we might cover that one in a future episode. Uh, so I don't want to get too far down the weeds on that one. But they turned off the safety equipment. Yeah, yeah. But there were also other underlying issues. I mean, the, the air traffic control, also, they're at fault as well. Yeah. They, they did mess up here. So on November 6, 2006, families of 10 of the deceased filed a lawsuit for negligence against Excel Air and Honeywell. And Honeywell's the company that manufactured the avionics in, in the Embraer. Uh, the families alleged that the pilots were flying at the incorrect altitude and the Honeywell transponder was not functioning at the time of the collision. Uh, however, the case was dismissed by the U.S. District Court on grounds that a Brazilian court would be more suited to hear this case. Oh. On June 1st, 2007, Murilo Mendes, a Brazilian federal judge in the small city of Sinop, Mato Grosso, uh, indicted the two Embraer pilots and four Brasilia-based air traffic controllers for exposing an aircraft to danger. On December 8th, 2008, he dismissed charges of negligence against the pilots, but left in place a charge of imprudence. He also dismissed all charges against two of the four Brazilian-based controllers and reduced the charges against the other two, but supported bringing new charges against a fifth controller based in Sao Jose de Campos, the Embraer's departure airport. On January 12, 2010, his ruling was overturned by Judge Candido Ribeiro in a federal court in Brasilia, reinstating the negligence charges against the pilots. I know, I'm sorry, this, this is super complicated. Well, it sounds like they're going back and forth. Right, they're trying to figure out who to blame and how much blame from a criminal perspective. Okay, yeah, this is criminal, not civil. Correct. On October 26, 2010, a military court convicted air traffic controller Sergeant Joe Marcelo Fernandez dos Santos, sentencing him to 14 months in jail for failing to take action when he saw the Embraer's anti-collision system had been turned off. 
Uh, Santos will remain free pending the outcome of the appeal process. Four other controllers were acquitted for lack of proof. On the 17th of May, 2011, Judge Mendes sentenced air traffic controller Lucivando Tiburquio de Alencar to a term of up to three years and four months, but ruled he's eligible to do community service in Brazil instead and acquitted Santos on charges of harming Brazil's air transport safety. So it seems like, for the most part, a lot of charges are being either dismissed or reduced and people are just doing community service. Mm. On May 16th, 2011, Judge Mendes sentenced the two pilots to four years and four months of prison in a semi-open facility for their role in the collision. But he commuted the sentences to community service to be served in the United States. Four years and four months? And how does that get commuted to community service? I think that they had to pass a guilty judgment, but they didn't want to bring these pilots back to Brazil to serve prison. So they let them stay in the United States and do community service in the United States. Yeah, but that's how many hours of community service is four years and four months? I don't know. Probably a lot. Uh, Brazilian authorities accused the pilots of turning off the legacy's transponder moments before the accident and turning it on again only after the crash. But it was denied by the crew in a deposition via video conference. Mendes said in his sentence, the pilots had failed to verify the functioning of equipment for more than an hour a length of time he called an eternity in aviation. On October 9th, 2012, Brazilian federal prosecutors announced that they had successfully appealed the sentence of the pilots, asking to increase their sentences by 17 months to a total of five years and nine months. A new trial was scheduled for the 15th of October that year, with the pilots again facing trial in absentia. On that date, the court upheld the prior convictions but modified the sentences to 37 months for each, requiring that the pilots report regularly to authorities and stay home at night. So, I mean, that's basically it. The pilots, you know, did have to do community service here in the United States. They have to report to authorities and, oddly enough, stay home at night. I don't know why that's added in there. Well, it's like a like a curfew, adult curfew kind of thing. I guess. Uh, so, I mean, that's it. That's... uh. The entirety of this incident, two planes colliding over the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. What about like civil? Like, can you sue like the Brazilian government? I don't know. I mean, it's it's difficult to sue a government, right? Uh, yeah. I think governments are largely protected from those types of suits. And especially in this case, you know, the military is involved in overseeing it. How do you sue the military? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that there was any civil relief for the uh, the families involved in this incident. Uh, I don't know for certain. but uh, Maybe that, if they uh, sued the American airline? I mean, I think they tried to do that in U.S. court, but the U.S. court uh, kicked it back over to Brazil. And I don't know oh, what okay. happened at that point. Uh, basically, everything I read to you was all I could find about the outcomes of these various suits and of the various litigation. I, I find it weird. I feel like I should have been able to find more, but in, in, in researching, that's about it. I feel like typically, you know, people are very interested in the accident. They're interested in what caused it. But then I think people's attention kind of wanes as, you know, because these things take years. Yeah. Well, and also if it's getting kicked back and forth and then moved here and then it's like, yeah, the, the, I don't know, the people's interest. Yeah, know. these are definitely important cases, especially to the families involved or the people who were involved in the accident. But I think uh, a lot of other people lose interest as the years go on. I mean, what I say, the this final um, court appearance was uh, October 2012, which was six years after the incident. Yeah. So like you said, these investigations take a long time. Court proceedings take a long time. And, um, you know, other stuff happens. People move on yeah. with their lives. Uh, so that's it. Uh, a totally avoidable incident. I, I, I guess most of these incidents are totally avoidable, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, that, that ends in uh, tragedy. Uh, so I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, as always, again, remind you, please follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on both Twitter and uh, Instagram. We'll be linking that article I talked about that the New York Times columnist wrote uh, about his experience on the Embraer jet. Uh, here as well as any photos we can find that uh, you guys may find interesting and uh, it would also really help us a lot if you please uh, share this podcast with a friend anyone you think might find it interesting 
Uh, share it with uh, who should they share it with, Chris? Uh, share it with someone who rides a bike. Share it with a bike rider, right? Yeah. Bikes don't have radios. They don't have anything to listen to. Tell them to put a podcast. Listen to a podcast while they're riding a bike. But make sure they're they're riding their bike at the correct altitude. Yeah. <laughs> stay in the bike lane. Yeah, stay in the bike lane. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll see you guys again uh, next week. And don't forget to check out our new Black Box Down shirt available for sale at store.rushteet.com or in the episode notes. 